0: Hello folks, it's Pambi here. Is it just me or does everything feel like it relates back to COVID-19 these days? The link with today's podcast is the importance of communicating science and doing that with policymakers. It's hard not to feel like the experts should have been taken more seriously long before the current outbreak. Thankfully, people like today's guest Amy are keen to affect change. So join us to hear how and why. two scientist friends we are here today myself Pambe Bahia and David Basanta who is my trusty sidekick I guess at this stage Um, we are in Dallas for a series of science communication events and one of the lovely people who is joining us for said events is dr. Amy J. Hawkins how are you doing Amy oh I'm well thank you thank you so much for coming to speak to us today um, I know you, you've been a little bit wary about what this is going to involve, so I'm hoping that beer is going to allay your fears a little bit.
1: I'm not going to tell you it won't.
0: <laughs> is that helpful? Yeah. Sure. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> so the, usually the way we start the podcast is by getting our guests to tell us what it was that inspired them to go into science, their journey, and how they ended up where they are now. That's a long ask, I know. It is. It is a long
1: ask. It's really hard to place a singular point in time where I thought science, yes, me, that's the singular direction in which I'm going to go, right? Was it was it when I was four four years old and telling my grandmother, "I think your dog has an ear infection." And then they <laughs> took it to the vet and indeed it had an ear infection. Yeah. You know, that was that was an exciting moment to have a hypothesis and then have medical evidence suggests that my hypothesis was true, but I think um, working as an undergrad in a lab at the University of Virginia and having grad students tell me that the reason that they went to grad school was that they liked working on questions, and if I thought that I might want to work on the same kind of question for about five years, then I shouldn't be afraid of thinking about going to graduate school. That stuck with me. I like thinking Long and deeply about questions, mm-hmm. and and this has afforded me the opportunity to do that. Um, you wanted to know where I am now, or
0: well, let's go into the fact that obviously you were inspired to go and do a graduate degree. What was it that you studied? I ended up studying DNA repair,
1: and that is not what I set out to do. Uh, my minor in college was bioethics. I really enjoyed thinking about questions of. Distributive justice, right? Um, we have a limited number of resources in the world for different different purposes, whether they be research dollars or dollars to spend on medical expenses. Uh, and who should those resources go to and why? And how do we how do we think about that question in a just manner? Mm. That had tons of appeal to me. Um, and I wrote an undergraduate uh, thesis or large paper or project on sort of questions about disability and distributive justice and I was really interested in deaf culture at the time which um, is maybe doesn't get as much attention in the greater public eye as it used to Mm -hmm. but people were really concerned within the deaf community about cochlear implants at the time so Uh these are devices that go past some of the non-functional parts of an inner ear and allow somebody to maybe here isn't the right term, but allow somebody's brain to interpret sound information where previously it wasn't able to. And wow, I thought that was super interesting. And I thought that was interesting to think about whether or not these abilities allowed you to be part of a culture or exit that culture. Mm -hmm. And I met a geneticist who was working on major questions about deaf genetics and the deaf population. And he said, well, why don't you apply to my graduate school?
0: And I hadn't...
1: (laughs) I had thought that I was going to take a break and work in more research laboratories to get a greater sense of what I would end up doing, but I threw caution to the wind and applied to one graduate school and then went to it, um, thinking that I would combine, I don't know, a master's degree in genetic counseling with a research PhD and then go on to continue to think about genetic diseases and how genetic information gives patients autonomy to make choices truly informed choices about their medical care and the medical care of their uh, descendants. This is really exciting to me. It still yeah. is, obviously. You can tell how I'm talking about it. I really <laughs> care about this stuff. So that's, cool. that's how I went to get a, a PhD in human genetics at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine.
0: But you ended up working on DNA repair. I tell sure us did. Tell more about that. How does that work? Um, uh, halfway into my first year
1: of graduate school my roommate was diagnosed with cancer, um, late-stage Hodgkin's disease, and it suddenly clicked for me. I wasn't having the best experience in the research lab I was rotating in, and it really appealed to me to switch focus and work on questions about cancer because a lot of people who have uh, different disorders that are associated with uh, deafness or syndromes that have deafness as part of their component. They, they don't necessarily want to um, receive treatment for their disorder, right? They're because they're part of the deaf community and that's a, a culture by itself that has a lot of value for them. Yeah. But not many people want to be part of the cancer community without receiving treatment. Quite. So... Uh, I decided to try to explore other research opportunities after that in cancer genetics laboratories. So I ended up working in two laboratories who uh, work side by side with each other uh, in a radiation oncology department and the farm talks department on DNA repair pathways that get activated when people receive radiation or chemotherapy as treatment. The way that radiation or chemotherapy works to treat cancer is it breaks up your DNA. Yep. So we're interested in studying how are those pathways broken in cancer cells or how could we help to break them in cancer cells to make treatment more effective?
0: So was there, there's never one true answer to anything within science, but what was the conclusion that you came to at the end of your project? I
1: concluded that a small protein called TDP1 was important for a certain kind of DNA repair called non-homologous end-joining repair. <laughs> it's a it's a kind of double-strand DNA repair that is both strands of your DNA are are broken. That's the really important kind of DNA repair because if you break both strands, then you have a, a free end flapping around, right? And you don't have a, a template necessarily to, to just... Put bases back in Mm -hmm. DNA double strand break or DNA double strand breaks are the most lethal part of uh, any kind of radiation or chemotherapeutic treatment. So we're really interested in learning about how they work. Mm -hmm. I basically studied, you know, like just a tiny little component of the end of that shoelace. Let's say.
0: So actually, this is kind of interesting. We were talking about this idea today that people who Um, stop working directly within research and uh, in our case they move away from the lab bench people have a tendency to say that they've left science and I really don't like that idea because I feel like if I were to go and do something else I would still be a scientist and I would I would find it very difficult to leave behind those scientific principles in whatever I was doing so um, in your case you did actually leave the lab bench and Uh, In Utah, now let me get the name of the organization right. You started working as a a communicator at the Genetic Science Learning Center. So tell us about that. Uh,
1: Yes, I had the opportunity after I did some science outreach work in my first postdoc, which was very wet lab, tissue culture, Western blots, all of that good stuff based. You
0: should see Amy's face while she's saying all this (laughs) stuff. It's awesome there
1: pain and suffering written across i just want to no, i have been in the little. trenches with everybody else who has been in the trenches if i'm leaving work and i see lit windows in the research buildings i know what oh, those people are doing yeah. i know they're suffering <laughs> sometimes they're not sometimes they're making positive data and they're experiencing the great energy and momentum that comes from that sometimes they're staying late to figure out that their western blot didn't work and yeah. that's that's tough I feel for them.
0: Yes. But you moved on. But I
1: moved on. Uh, So I had the opportunity to do a second postdoc in science education with the Genetic Science Learning Center. And that is an organization that is part of the University of Utah. It's housed within their human genetics department. They make evidence-based curriculum for high school students, middle school students, and now patients as well. They just got a large grant from the All of Us Project I don't know if you're familiar with that, but no. it's, the, it's a big old precision medicine project to sequence, you know, many hundreds or thousands of people in the United States, and specifically to reach out to diverse populations that haven't traditionally been a part of these large genetic databases. And that's a problem when we're trying to figure out how to classify so many genetic variants now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, project is far-reaching and amazing, and we hope to get lots of phenotypic and genotypic data to actually, you know, make statements about causation. But that's, that's far down the line, and right now I think a lot of people are focused on getting those, engaging those diverse populations, so we're not just further privileging populations that are already privileged in terms of medical treatment.
0: Yeah. I mean, I recently just finished reading Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women, which, I mean, forget about minorities within the population. Women who make up 50% of the population have been hugely ignored when it comes to medical research, technolo- technological advancements, like all of these things. We've been an absolute disaster. And that's women in science. We've also failed to be accounting for ourselves.
1: No, I, I think women are just smaller versions of men. <laughs> No, heart disease definitely isn't different in women. You might, no, yeah, definitely not. No, Those hormonal pathways, surely they can't affect anything differently.
0: Quite. Obviously, sorry. this is said with all, sarca- all yes, sarcasm. Yes, I'm sorry,
1: Speaking in sort of a monotone, so you sort of have to pick up from context when I'm being <laughs> a little sarcastic. I hope lots of you were quick enough to do that.
0: But yes, I mean, this mm-hmm. is just highlights how very important it is to make sure that You're right, there is diversity, but quite often that diversity comes from the people doing the work. They tend to be the ones to spot, well, hang on a minute, you've been doing this for 50 years. Like, Did you ever think about these people when you were designing such a thing? Yes, indeed. So you... as part of your educational work, you work directly, as you say, with curricula for schools. Can you tell us more about that work?
1: Certainly. Uh, we received grants from the National Science Foundation to do these education research projects. And so there's a wide field of science education, if you aren't familiar with it. And why would you be? Lots of you. if you've, Even if you are the product of you know, years or decades of education, that doesn't necessarily know that you understand what went into the soup in terms of why you were taught, what you were taught, by whom. Where did the education standards come from? Who makes them? Who makes the materials to support those educational standards? These are all deeply political questions. Mm -hmm. I was very pleased to be part of an organization that was making free, accessible curricula to millions of people a year. Not everything should be decided by, forgive me, Dallas, a school board in Texas. Or one of the four large textbook conglomerate companies. I'm sure there are many, many people who work for those companies who are doing extremely valuable work, but it's important to get some diverse resources out there. Yeah. And free ones. Yes. <laughs> it's very important to get free resources out there as well.
0: Absolutely. So the
1: main research project that I was a part of uh, in the Genetic Science Learning Center was a part of a a five year grant to produce a curriculum that integrated genetics and evolution topics. And that that might sound so obvious to lots of scientists that that seems ridiculous. Like of course, why wouldn't you teach those topics together? But actually in most high school curricula, those are taught as completely separate topics. And some places you know exactly why, right? Like evolution is a hot button topic and many, many schools, school systems avoid it entirely. So we had to be really careful when we were designing this curriculum with the idea that we wanted it to be accessible to as many school systems as possible. The Genetic Science Learning Center has a really admirable process to developing curriculum and that they don't do it top down they don't just decide what's important and make it without involving teachers for every project they bring in a group of teacher stakeholders expert teachers hopefully if it's a national level grant from across the country so we got together 20 different teacher stakeholders from diverse places right an indian reservation um the deep south inter- and and also other you know less other more traditional places as well, but Mm -hmm. that meant that we got to ask those teachers whether or not, you know, can we... If we're making a curriculum that has evolution in it, can we also put humans in it? No, we couldn't. Like, if we put human evolution as a component of that curriculum, we were told that there was a very real risk that the entire thing would be passed over by school systems in certain areas of the country. And so we made a, a choice to say that okay, we would rather school systems were able to use this and then in the future, if other teachers want to, they can bring in themselves the human evolution component, Yeah. for example.
0: Yeah, and I mean, honestly, today's workshop that we've just been attending, which has been all to do with knowing your audience, is uh, it's such a brilliant idea for people who are doing any kind of science outreach, science communication, Um, Because if you don't ask the people that you're trying to communicate to, you could be wasting your time. And today was, for us, especially speaking to people who are involved in funding and so on, it was a complete eye-opener for me. I don't know if you picked up anything new today from what any of our panelists were talking about.
1: I thought it was pretty interesting to hear how diverse their missions and aims were in terms of multidisciplinary teams for example or you know we have we will fund something but we have to do it in concert with another funding organization Mm -hmm. those were those were new ideas to me but they're all interesting models I think they all have the potential to actually produce research that will affect change I think that's what a lot of us
0: are here for yeah and I think I feel like the, the kind of scientists who do outreach and communication they want to have some kind of tangible benefit from what they do and what a lot of them might not have been considering doing is science policy and this is something I know is definitely in your wheelhouse. So how did you get involved in that?
1: Um that's a kind of a two-fold answer. Um I definitely got involved in science policy through a really backdoor mechanism I'd say. First of all I would want to give a plug to ASBMB Hill Day. I had that experience several years ago. I'm sorry. Do people know what ASBMB no, is? Sorry, we should probably explain, sorry, we that. Should probably explain yeah. that. We should think about our audience, right? ASBMB stands for American Society of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, and they have a fantastic science outreach team. Plug, plug. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but of which ev- we may or may not be members. Of which we may or may not be members, but. Every year, they ask for student and postdoc applications to act as advocates on behalf of science funding, to go talk to people at the state level and national level about why, why is it important to fund the National Science Foundation? Why is it important to fund the National Institutes of Health or the CDC or any other part of our scientific enterprise infrastructure? And most people who serve as staffers on either the state or national level don't have explicit training in science the same way that the population who are asking to reach out to them do and so a lot of it is understanding A lot of it's communicating to an audience, right, of people who are interested and invested in policy and they understand the policy making side of things, but you understand the science side of things. But it's interesting to sit down with a staffer and explain to them like, so I, I work in a publicly funded lab at a university within your district and it's run by R01 grants, and they say, what's an R01 grant? And you describe it, and then you say, well, how long does it take to apply for an R01 grant? Well, it it took my lab about a month to put together the preliminary data and meetings and writing and all that. How many R01s do you have to apply for before you're successful? Well, for this institute, you know, maybe you have to apply for eight or nine of them for every one that's successful. That makes them crazy because they understand what a waste of human labor that is. It should be competitive process. Of yeah. course it should be. But the idea that so much of our time goes into creating these unsuccessful applications is heartbreaking. It's demoralizing. It's a waste of human resources. What can we do to push the needle on that? I, I'd love to like to be part of those discussions.
0: Yeah, and I think... A lot of scientists potentially don't realize that they could be doing more to advocate for and improve their own situation like every any department you go for in any institution that does science people will complain non-stop about how much time they waste on grants how much time they waste on doing various administrative things and if you're not going to be the person to go out there and reach out to the politicians to your local policymakers um, then you're one less person to help with improving the situation for everybody.
1: I fundamentally believe that if the general public had an understanding of how much scientist time is wasted on this sort of grant application time rather than producing potential cures for patients, I think people's heads would come off. Think about how many people have ever asked you to be in a 5K for cancer research or, or something similar. If those people understood how many resources are being wasted just perpetuating the funding cycle, I think their hearts would be broken. Yeah. I, will, I wish there was something we could do about this. Anyway.
0: Yes. But Quite. how?
1: But how did I get involved in science policy? Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, so. When I first moved to Salt Lake City, I did what many postdocs do, and I moved to a an apartment very, very close to the university, thinking I'm going to be there at a lot of weird hours. I want to be as close as I possibly can, so when I'm going back to feed my cells or harvest a sample at midnight, I want to make that you know, as painless as possible. But after I started my second postdoc, I moved into the part of the city where I could afford to buy. and that part of the city has very different challenges to the part of the city immediately adjacent to the university and there was a house across the street that uh, was very clearly selling drugs and not not like pleasant drugs drugs that required people to pull up with their base blaring and sit there at 3 a.m. not super not super desirable um, And so we, as a neighborhood, you know, called the police on them multiple times, but I got invited to a neighbor's house to form a neighborhood watch group, and we did that, and at the same time, um, those of us who knew how to access some of the publicly available databases were finding out who owned that house and was renting it to those people, and I wrote a letter and circulated it to 30 people in the neighborhood saying, you know, we would like you to invoke these renter's laws and evict your tenants because they are causing a nuisance in our neighborhood and I sent that letter after we collected all those signatures to the landlord by certified mail it was nice I got a text when it was received at his house and um, a couple of arrests later those people were actually kicked out of the neighborhood and that felt really good (laughs) because that meant like Oh, we made something. We made something good happen in the neighborhood. We came together and effected change. Yeah. Then I thought I want to do that again.
0: <laughs> the irony of kicking out somebody who deals drugs to only get a hit from what you're doing.
1: I see where you're going with that. <laughs> uh, so I joined what's in in salt lake city are called um community councils so that's a thing below city council it's all volunteer it's all just people donating their time for community level causes but my community has a lot of causes that are worth donating their time to Um, and so through that i've gotten to know lots of people in the city people who are elected and holding office although almost always part-time office but also people who just similarly serve a lot of volunteer hours trying to shift things in neighborhoods for the better in terms of getting resources to people who need them um, getting ordinances and rules applied where they they should have been a long time ago and I think we have the hope of of actually I don't want to use the phrase moving the needle if I'm going to talk about the opioid crisis in a minute or two it can does I say seem a bit that
0: sticky right gross. <laughs>
1: But that's how I've become involved in in community-level politics.
0: It's to the point where your face has been splattered across the local newspapers, right? Yes, the
1: Sunday edition. I was bigger than Joe Biden. (gasps) It was not... I knew that they were going to write a story, and I knew they took a photo of me, but they'd also taken photos of lots of other things, so the fact that I woke up to finding that out on a Sunday morning was really surprising a little unsettling almost (laughs) but um if it if it means that i'm being an effective voice on behalf of my neighborhood then then that's good yeah i I, i'm not i'm not really interested in in publicity's sake for um for it in of itself
0: even though i like the hashtag bigger than biden
1: that is not going to be the hashtag (laughs) for any no only if applied to uh, certain other democratic candidates
0: yes, fair enough Um, so I would like to ask, you. we don't often ask our speakers for advice for other scientists but we actually maybe you don't need to be a scientist what advice would you have for anybody who um, would like to advocate for change within science, whether it's changing the curriculum within a school, whether it's actually asking for more funding or anything really form you relationships
1: started? you form relationships with stakeholders Form relate. Uh, form relationships with science teachers and understand where they believe the deficits are what their needs are uh form relationships with your local legislatures you know um, In 2018, I was effective in partnering with my state-level representative, Joel Briscoe, to get an appropriation for uh, what we called an opioid crisis curriculum. But I came up with that that idea during the legislative session, not even at the beginning of it. So the idea that we turned something that was an idea into actual funding within the span of a couple of months is astonishing. The only way that happened was because I had a pre-existing relationship with Joel because he knew that I'd been running and going to community council meetings in Salt Lake City for years. He knew that I cared about everything, whether it was you know, a road with too many potholes or where homeless resource centers needed to go in our city and why sidewalk accessibility, he knew that I was pretty invested in a lot of community level issues. So when I came to him and said, Joel, we're spending tens of millions of dollars as a state in new homeless resource centers, so much of this is due to the opioid problem in our state. Utah had, I think, depending on the data that you look at, I think we were number seven in the country in terms of per capita opioid overdose deaths. Oh, wow. Which is... Which is surprising to a lot of people who think about Utah as a place where people are um, frequently counseled to not be addicted to anything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, coffee, for example. Yeah. So the idea that we have that many opioid overdose deaths was is often shocking to many people in and out of the state. But I said, Joel, this my legislator is a former educator himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, not science, government, natural fit. Uh, when i said Joel this is a population level problem that needs a population level solution why are we not putting any funding into educating about opioids in k through 12 you know his his eyes got big and said yeah. okay we're going to we're going to develop that we're going to we're going to put money towards that because he he immediately saw from his own experience that that was a sensible solution and like a a great return on dollars right if you think about how much it costs to effectively treat somebody for opioid addiction versus putting putting the money into education on the front end yeah that math isn't too difficult
0: yeah it's funny because i think when we think about politics to a lot of people they instantly think of national level politics they think about the the members of congress and senate and so on The, the ones that are on the tv every day And it maybe bypasses them that they can actually speak to people who are very local uh, and are more likely to be able to affect change.
1: Oh, it totally bypassed me too. But I'd say uh, the national election that took place in 2016, if nothing else, it made me only turn more to my local relationships, to where I personally, through relationships I had, could make a difference hey, there would have to be a a whole different level of investment or of time or other resources for me to have anything close to that influence nationally. But I can change the lives of my neighbors. I can change the lives of school kids in my Mm -hmm. state just by the level of involvement I have now. That's amazing. I I mean, I'm not trying to, like, it's amazing to realize the effect that you can have locally if you get engaged.
0: Yeah. So... Uh, Speaking of the elections, one of the things that came about as a result of it was the March for Science and an entire discussion around whether scientists should be political. Is science political? What would you say to that? Everything's political.
1: How you choose to live your life is a political decision. How you choose to make your money and spend your money who you are with, whether or not you can marry, if you marry, everything's political. When I marched in the March for Science in Utah, I carried an American flag because it was important to me, as opposed to a sign that said a clever saying, Mm -hmm. because it was important to me to demonstrate that I think science is patriotic. I mean, like, I think it's deeply patriotic. I think it's, I mean, I think it's hope for the world, right? And that, that stands apart from Nationalism and patriotism, but I—I I mean, if you—if you want to believe in investing resources with other people, I mean, to me, that's—that's that's patriotism. That's science. That's any kind of sharing of resources.
0: Yeah. So David says, "When do you move to DC?" I'm gonna laugh. Oh, I'm, I'm like from DC. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Have you seen how much it costs to live there? No.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's not crazy to think that I would return someday, of course. But I really like the life I get to live in Utah. I love the engagement with the outdoors. I love I love the fact that I've lived there for eight years and I've been to accomplish so much and affect... Posit- I feel like I'm on a, a positive trajectory. And I feel like in Washington, D.C., I'd only be one of many educated voices. So... It's kind of exciting to think that I get to do what I do where I do it. Utah has lots of great things going for it, but also has the greatest income disparity between men and women. Ninety percent huh. of women who get a STEM degree in Utah plan to leave. There, are, there are things that could be done to, to make positive changes in, in those areas, and I would love to be part of it.
0: Yeah, and if we want to go back to the the kind of the political argument that The outcome of the 2016 election was, um, as a result of people being ignored, it seems like the, the perfect way to be engaged in... Those are the communities that need it. D.C. doesn't really need it.
1: There are probably like 100 people exactly like me in D.C., but there aren't as many people exactly like me in Utah, so maybe I'm filling in a niche.
0: Yeah. So you have no plans to go into politics?
1: I didn't say that either. <laughs> Don't be terrible.
0: <laughs>
1: it would be very exciting to serve people in that capacity. Mm-hmm. I'm not going not gonna to lie. But I'd say a lot of the same skills that you get from being in the front of a classroom or some of... Can be cross-applied to being at the front of a community meeting, right? You need to be able to listen. You need to be able to think about your audience, what you know, what they what they need to get out of that meeting. It's, it's a lot like a classroom, actually, yeah. but I mean that in a positive way, right? Yeah. If you're trying to be an effective leader at the front of either. I could talk about more about where the opioid curriculum came from because it wasn't just me being like, "Hey, Joel, I have a bright idea."
0: Please do. Uh,
1: it was actually from sitting in a classroom in Utah huh. uh, as part of doing our curriculum development and testing. We put people in classrooms after we've made the curriculum and tested it to see, you know, are you implementing the curriculum in your classroom in a way that we think is how we, we thought approximately it would go and so that means sitting in a classroom on and off again sometimes for weeks which is really interesting because that means that i got to see like the wide range of where our tax dollars go i got to see private schools where every single eighth grader has a macbook and then i saw public schools where the student-to-teacher ratio was 42 to 1 and everything takes so much more time because you have to squeeze your way around the classroom just to distribute papers and like that's half the class But I was in, let's say, a classroom in the middle. It was a charter school, so it's public, but uh, they definitely had additional resources because they had a space simulator in their school. What's a space simulator? It looks like the set of Star Trek, and they write curriculum for it, and it was awesome. But I was sitting in that classroom, and the teacher, who I very much admired and who always kept her cool. She had been a scientist before she became a classroom teacher. She opened up her Friday classroom using a news clip from the CNN 10 about the opioid crisis. And this is for ninth graders, right? So these are kids who are 12 and 13 in like a distant suburb of Utah, not not like urban Mm -hmm. Utah. And she got really choked up and she started telling students like i need you to see this because i've had to visit former students in jail i've had to go to former students funerals like this will affect your life and you need to you need to be aware of this even if you would prefer not to be mm-hmm. and it that was not a part of our evolution curriculum <laughs> but it struck me suddenly like oh my god teachers don't have resources to teach about this and they and And they could, right? Like they could actually prevent a lot of terrible things from happening if they educated students early on about the questions that students are only being conditioned to be afraid of. Like, what are opioids? How do they work in the brain? Why are they so scary, you know? Um, So it was after that experience that I thought, like, let's let's develop something better than just a clip from the CNN 10 to teach in classrooms about, you know, actual science concepts. If you get something into a science classroom, it's more likely to get taught, maybe, than if it's in a health classroom. Oh, health, class, health classrooms mean sex ed. Health oh. classrooms mean, like, you know, not every student necessarily goes to health class. Some of them get opted out, right? So if you get something in under the science standards, instead of the health standards, it might go in front of more students, so yeah. that was how that happened.
0: Well, this seems like a great opportunity to big up teachers because I think we don't appreciate half of what they do. And, you know, to me, this is very close to my heart since one of my sisters is a teacher and the other one's training to become one. And both of them have seen students in terrible conditions with terrible home lives and they do so much more. And the, this is just one perfect example of how... They can introduce a very complex important societal idea um, to students to whom it's going to be important. Um,
1: if I think about why I went into biology, I know I couldn't think of a good example earlier, but I think about the first time I transformed bacteria in high school to make them antibiotic resistant. Oh, that's cool. That was pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean you hear about antibiotic resistance yeah. and all of a sudden you've done it. Whoa. Oh, that's Whoa. evil. That's awesome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Obviously, this is a very controlled bacterium, and you know you can...
1: Yeah, it went straight into the bleach, sure. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, so David wants to know, as a political activist and scientist, which cause is dearest to your heart? They're one and the same,
1: though, right? Haven't we been talking about that? I, I guess think. the...
0: Um, something that you've advocated for yeah, not between the two Oh, if I had to pick the t-
1: one or example, the other? For
0: example, obviously you've, you've advocated for um, teaching about the opioid crisis. Sure. Um, but is there a particular cause that you feel like you would lend your support to?
1: I think, you know as time goes on and as I become a member or aware of different communities I become more educated about what those communities need, right? I wouldn't if you had asked me five years ago like are you going to advocate for an opioid education curriculum in utah high schools i would have been like what how you know like who isn't that somebody else's job hasn't that already been done i have no idea what i'm going to know about five years from now that i'm going to be convinced of is like the new thing that i should be focusing all of my my effort on i've i have no idea but i'm I think it's really exciting to be open to those possibilities and to, to try to re- remain interested in communities outside your own so you can become aware of those possibilities. Yeah. It's exciting.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that came up today as a result of the, the workshop we were at was um, if you are going to reach out to your politicians make sure that you're bipartisan in your approach. And I know everybody says, oh yeah, yeah, like we keep talking about this, like being a happy clappy family. The problem is that you need to look at an individual's voting record before you realize what they actually believe. For example, you know, a lot of the, the left side of the spectrum will think the Koch brothers are truly evil and yet they've put huge amounts of money into cancer research. Sure, that's probably for a very personal aim, but at the same time, that means that this is something you need to be aware of if you're you're trying to get funding for something, for example. Um, so, have you had experience with people who are potentially on the other side of the political spectrum to you, but they they share a cause with you that you felt that you could work with them?
1: I think the the opioid education issue was is, was a case of that. I mean, I had to talk to the education appropriation subcommittee at the state legislature, and, and I'm sure there are people on that committee who have lots of different beliefs than my own, but they were receptive to hearing about why this would have been a good idea. The older I get, the more I'm super excited about the idea that somebody might have a totally different set of beliefs than mine, but we can come together over one or a few different issues I mean that's certainly the case for the neighborhood I live in right I live in a neighborhood where some people have lived there their entire lives and I've lived there since 2014 <laughs> so it's very kind of them to be you know tolerant to my newcomer energy <laughs> but, but I do think that I am advocating effectively for the neighborhood in terms of getting it resources but what else can I say about that? I don't, I mean, I, I wish I could say that I had had the foresight to, yes, go look up the records of the people who represent me before I started engaging them in conversation. I didn't. They showed up to my community meetings, and they're the people who represent me, so I engaged them in conversation, and I listened to what they had to say, and I found points of overlap with them, and I, and I continue to. I love knowing that one of my state-level reps is passionate about Uh, rape kits and solving the problem about backlogs of rape kits in our state. She may have voted against other things that we don't have commonalities on, but I know that she's been really effective on some causes I believe in. Likewise for other people who represent me. I think I, I very much respect some people stating like you should go look up somebody's voting record and I think that is probably a very important piece. But I think even more than that is showing up and forming relationships with them and hearing about what they talk about. Because you don't always know why somebody voted the way they do. Yeah. It could be because they have another important relationship that they have to honor. It mm-hmm. could be that the issue is more nuanced than even you can appreciate in yeah. terms of reading about it on a summary website.
0: Yeah. I think
1: getting to know the people who represent you is invaluable.
0: Yeah absolutely obviously in the the example that you gave um it was much more important for you to just be honest about what you knew about the situation and to create that relationship and in that honesty she you know she can understand that okay well was it she he 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 in that case Um, but i I have i have relationships
1: with both he's and she's who represent me Good. Which is exciting since women are underrepresented in the Utah State Legislature. They only about twenty-five percent of the folks up there on the hill. Oh, so yeah. it's okay. We're gonna get better.
0: Yes. 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 Underrepresentation is just a curse. I, I, think, I to everything.
1: I, I said this earlier today, but I, I want to state this again since I'm guessing your podcast audience doesn't overlap too tightly with the people we were speaking with earlier today but you know i want to emphasize like i live in utah and that's a pretty red state and i'm going to guess that a lot of people who want to listen to your podcast about humanizing scientists might not really identify with red state politics it's still worth getting to know your legislative representatives it's still worth getting to know your city council You don't necessarily know what the personal beliefs are of the the folks who represent you, even if you think you perceive them voting a certain way, and you never know when you're going to be surprised by where you live really dramatically changing in terms of its political opinions. When I lived in Virginia in 2008, it went blue in the presidential election. That was shocking. That was shocking. Virginia hadn't gone blue nationally in forever. And I had no idea that that was even possible. Yeah. When I lived in Utah in 2012, suddenly I was visiting relatives in North Carolina, and I was scrolling through Facebook, and suddenly all my gay friends in Utah were getting married. And I thought, like, this has to be a <laughs> prank, like, this can't be possible. But no, gay marriage got legalized in Utah before it was legalized nationally. I now live a few blocks away from Harvey Milk Boulevard. Over half of Salt Lake City Council is gay. These are not and our current mayor is gay. These are not things that I would have predicted moving to Utah at all. I think that's really exciting. Yeah. And I think that a lot of places have the capacity to to change like that.
0: Gay justice. <laughs> and you for the people who put in the work. Oh my gosh,
1: there are people putting in some serious work.
0: Unpaid work at that.
1: Yeah, and not just unpaid work, but... You know, there are people being really vulnerable in front of populations where they could get hurt. Whether it's teachers, whether it's people who are going to gay marriage rallies. Anybody fighting on behalf of civil rights for a marginalized population is putting in more work than we could know. People who are teaching in states where red flag laws aren't appropriately used, people who are afraid of gun violence in their communities, there are a lot of people putting in some really scary work on behalf of others.
0: Yeah. Well, on the topic of being vulnerable in front of an audience, who wants to thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and it's, it's really nice to address a topic that is very current and a very sore spot for a lot of people regardless of where they come from as a Brit it's equally painful for me reading about politics um, so yeah thank you so much
1: oh it was a pleasure I hope I didn't stick my foot in my mouth as much <laughs> as I feared
0: <laughs> not at all thank you
1: choose from in terms of dirt that I I wrote down about, like, keeping months' worth of samples that I thought would be stable at negative 20 when they should have been stored at negative 80, so I couldn't go back and repeat months' worth of experiments. Uh, After, you know, years and years of working in mammalian cells, one time I forgot that yeast was a fungus, and I made a weird joke that clearly revealed that I forgot that yeast was a fungus. That's embarrassing. Oh, oh yeah! I want to talk about my preconceived notions of Salt Lake City because I just talked about them in a positive light. But why don't I talk about them in terms of like how I was an idiot? Um, so when I went to Salt Lake City to do my postdoc interview, I was very excited. I was very nervous. Um, but as you all know, because we've we've discussed it before now, I really enjoy coffee, um, and I was extremely concerned how was I going to last through you know a 14 hour day of interviews and lunches without coffee because I thought that it was like illegal or something I don't know how I I don't have a really good excuse for thinking what I did. In fact I totally wrote off Salt Lake City to begin with in terms of a potential option And I shared that with friends like isn't it ridiculous I got an offer to go interview in Salt Lake City and then some of my mutual friends were like yeah you know our friend who's gay and black and a faculty member he moved there and he likes it a lot and that made me think maybe I ought to take my preconceived notions and stuff it and go and check it out myself but so I did and then so the night before my interview, I checked into the university guest house and went downstairs to talk to the person at the front desk. And as if I'm talking about something deeply shameful, I say to them, you know, and I look both ways before I ask this question because I guess I'm afraid that they won't be able to answer. And I say, like, so I, um, I have a really important interview tomorrow and I'm just, I'm just like a little worried about is there a way for me to get a cup of coffee tomorrow before my interview and she said yeah it's free with the continental breakfast next to the eggs in the lobby and i said oh okay and i think that's i think that's an important life lesson i think that's set the tone for other surprises i've had in utah since that moment
0: This podcast was recorded at the annual retreat for the ASBMB Science Outreach and Communications Committee, of which I'm a part. All of them are doing an amazing job to improve how scientific information reaches different audiences. So big love to them and all the wonderful people in Dallas who hosted us. You can find out more about that work at asbmb.org and by searching for Science Outreach. We thank the staff at Pegasus City Brewery for having us. When they open up again, you should head there for their regular science event series. We couldn't have picked a more friendly venue. In the meanwhile, if you're in Dallas, you can support them during this time by ordering your beer to go. We highly recommend it. It was delicious. In the meanwhile, take care of yourselves and other folks. Stay at home as much as you can. Remember to stay apart in public, six feet or two meters if you're the fancy metric type. We want you to stay well. and needles in my right foot because I was I'm sitting on top of it.
1: My, my right hand fell asleep and I answered the door for my very expensive coffee this morning with my, <laughs> my limp. Yeah, give it to me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, goodness.